a wig is for me the cherry on top. It's what makes it perfect. So that sort of fantasy of not wanting to be a woman, but wanting to look like a woman, it all fell into place and it all sort of was rolled up into this beautiful wig. And I'm very fortunate that I have access to a lot of them. (laughs) Ben Moyer has access to a lot of wigs because that's his business. He designs and sells wigs, but not just any wigs. Ben designs wigs made to meet the exact and exacting needs of drag queens. This is The Passion Economy. I'm Adam Davidson, and this week, someone who truly mastered something I call intimacy at scale. Ben managed to take his unique past, his unusual skills and interests, and solve a problem that only he and his community, which is to say drag queens, knew needed solving. And with better technology, with global trade, with the internet and social media, Ben could solve that problem for drag queens all over the world. So, as usual, we'll tell Ben's story in three parts. First, the background. What events, what experiences shaped Ben's particular passions and his passion economy business? Then we'll dig into that business, Wigs by Vanity. Vanity was Ben's drag name. Third, we pick apart Ben's story for lessons we can apply to our own lives and businesses. So let's get started with Ben's background. Ben grew up in Australia, not too far from Sydney, in a place called the Central Coast. It's a beautiful coastal area with lots of, it's very pretty to look at, lots of water and beaches and and it's, you know, it's a, uh, everything was lovely about it except for the people. (laughs) Um, But that's not their fault. Like they kind of, you know, just had never experienced someone like me before. Meaning an exuberant young gay person. And I mean, and back then it was a different time as well, because like I was born in 1978, so I grew up through the 80s and I was in high school in the early 90s. And and it was before, obviously, the internet and social media and all those things. And we just had a very narrow mind, narrow view of the world, especially in little, you know, it was, we weren't remote whatsoever, but like, you know, I think sort of culturally and socially, we think where I came from was very backward and very behind. You know, sort of if you weren't a surfer or a footballer, then there was something wrong with you. If you're a boy. If you're yeah. a boy. And how did you understand your sexuality and your gender identity and all of that when you were, you know, a teenager coming up? Well, out? I was always very aware of it. I was a very flamboyant kid from the very, very word go, like just, just straight away. And it was very much suppressed in my family because they didn't want to they didn't want to encourage it. And they thought that encouraging it would, you know, obviously just lock in what they were seeing, but what that did was sort of suppress my natural kind of, you know, who I was as a person. So Ben retreated inwards. He had a rich fantasy life where he imagined being the fabulous, openly gay man he wanted to be. He'd sometimes skip school and dress up in his mom's clothes. But usually in public, he would just try and mute himself. But... There were obvious things that I couldn't hide or that I couldn't help that made me a really easy target. 
Right. Because no matter how hard you tried, you weren't going to become a rugby player champion. Of, well, exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And then on top of that, like, I sort of, the more they kind of realized I was a target, the more I was targeted. And then the more I sort of retreated back into my own sort of, you know, my own internal sort of world again. Yeah. Yeah, to the point where, like, it was like, you know, I, before I turned 16, well, yeah, before I turned 16, I left school because, like, it just got so bad that, like, I attempted suicide. Oh, and, my God. Which is, like, sounds like a sad story. And every time I say that, say that I always, like, always finish by saying it wasn't a sad story. Well, it was to that point. But, like, I'm not telling it for sympathy. I'm telling it because it made the people around me realise how much pain I was in and how, just showed them how much help I needed. And that was, like, the turning point for my family and for me and that, you know, we sort of unconsciously decided that would never let that happen to anyone around us again and I would never hide who I was and but in saying that like I also removed myself from the world that did give me that lifestyle or that life. Ben dropped out of school to get away from the bullies and this toxic place that had driven him to attempt suicide but he didn't know what to do instead. Then one day his mom shakes him awake and says hey I found a job for you. She found this ad in the paper that just specifically wanted a 16-year-old, no experience necessary for a barber, just for an apprenticeship. And I was like, oh, okay, they don't want any experience. That's good. I'm 16. That's good. Let's do it. (laughs) And only me and one other went for the interview, and and I got it. In the movie of Ben's life, this is a key moment. This is when destiny grabs him and turns his life around. That's certainly how he sees it. I always think that life dealt me quite a hard deck like a hard deal in the first, you know, my early years. But then once I kind of got to that point and overcame it, I really felt like the planets aligned for me in most parts of my adult life. But after talking to Ben, my take is a little different. Lucky moments, these unlikely meetings, these strokes of genius, these happen to us all the time, but we often don't take advantage of them. We aren't paying close enough attention to know it could change our lives. Ben, as we'll see again and again, has been able to take these lucky moments and turn them into something more, like with that barber apprenticeship. The planet's definitely aligned to put me in that spot. It wasn't the best spot at the time, but it was the right direction. Because what happens through in an apprenticeship in Australia, you do four years earning nothing. My original wage for a full-time job was $125 a week, which is like slave labor. But out of that, you get an education, you get a trade and skills. And one day a week, you get sent to college to learn the sort of the, the, the fundamentals of it, not just the practical. So when I went to college that one day a week, that's when I was introduced to hairdressing and to hairdressers and to a really glamorous, creative, fabulous world with like-minded people. Ben was a natural at hairdressing, so much so that he didn't feel like he needed to finish his apprenticeship. After a year with the barber and taking college classes, he moved to Sydney and started working in a salon. And here's another moment where, as Ben would put it, the planets aligned. But as I would put it, Ben was this really keen observer of both himself and the world, and he realized that he needed to make a change in order to line up his passions with the opportunities available to him. Sydney, it turns out, has a rich drag history, and Ben was there at its peak. The movie The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert was out. It was this Oscar-winning movie about Australian drag queens that 
got so much attention in Australia and around the world. And Ben, who'd always loved women's clothing and makeup and looking glamorous, doing his hair, it was perfect for him. It was like just stepping into a new pair of shoes, but like they fit. It, the, the shoes, like it wasn't like a, you have to break them in. Just, I don't know. It was like, it's really hard. I, yeah. I really do feel that drag for me is an expression of who I am as a soul, like, you know, as a spirit. He developed this drag persona of vanity. And he started to do drag professionally. He was able to choreograph these dances and lip sync to songs that he loved. He had a following. People loved seeing him. He was great at drag. I had become an established, successful drag queen in Sydney. So I was like, you know, I was in demand. I was like, I was working almost every night of the week. So Ben quit his job at the salon. The hours were not flexible enough for him to keep doing drag professionally. But still always wanted to have a day job because I thought it was important to sort of keep myself grounded and attached in reality because you can very much lose yourself in the world of drag and become this sort of eternal (laughs) series of just going out. And then... As Ben would say, the planets aligned again. He got a job working part-time at a wig shop. Now, this was not a wig shop for drag queens or a special costume shop, mind you. It was a medical wig shop for people who had lost their hair in chemotherapy. And something became clear pretty quickly. I mean, I was a terrible salesman, terrible salesman. I wouldn't sell something to someone that I didn't believe it was the perfect thing for them. Mm-hmm. But eventually they kind of, I was just, they realized I was really good at doing the styling. So people would bring their wigs in for me to, like for us, the shop to maintain. And I kind of, that was my primary role. But my boss got a job making, you remember in The Matrix, one of the Matrix films where Hugo Weaving's character, Mr. Smith or whatever it is, like there's like a million of them. Yeah. Yeah. So the shop that I was working at, I don't know how that was made in Sydney at Fox Studios, but the shop that I was working at was commissioned to make a hundred of these wigs. So oh, to look like Hugo Weaving. To look like <laughs> Hugo Weaving. And so my boss at the time, she found this company in China that could do it and make it all. And she went over and visited them. Wow. And he probably has the least drag hair in the world, but that's okay. Totally. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't definitely not for drag, but yeah. it was the same principle. It's right. the same product. It's just made for a different purpose. So I was like, oh my God, can I get one for me? And I was like, not, not a Hugo Weaving wig, but like, yeah. but I got, I just got a wig copied and made it into with a lace front and it was human hair and that was my first wig. What did it look like? Ah, oh, well, it was blonde. It was copied from a Renee Paris wig in the colour Vanilla Lush. Um, <laughs> it was just a human hair. It was a really top quality. But yeah, it was just a beautiful wig and it got me just so, I just thrashed it. Yeah, thrashed it. I loved it. Loved it. And even then, I think, even wholesale, that was like just under a thousand, I think. And that was just for us to buy it from China. That was no markup. Now, here at the wig shop, this is where Ben figures out how to take his unlikely combination of interests and turn them into a passion business. Although it took a while. Now that we know the end of the story, it sort of looks inevitable that Ben is going to become a wig maker for drag queens. But at the time, it didn't feel like that. He just quit his job at a salon. He loves styling hair, but he doesn't particularly like working in a salon. He's making money as a drag queen at night, but it's not a huge amount of money, although it's very fun. And then he's a really lousy salesperson at a wig store. 
Slowly, he notices that he really likes working with wigs. Some of his medical patients come into the store and ask him to style their wigs, to design them a little bit. And he has a lot of fun. So Ben has these three overlapping passions, hairdressing, wigs, and drag. But he's not combining them into one thing. They're all distinct parts of his life. He wasn't reaching his full passion economy potential. But then... Ben has a light bulb moment, one that now seems fairly obvious. He gets that crazy expensive wig from China and... Being the creative kind of, you know, (laughs) person that I am, I'm like, I bet you I could learn how to do that. It ended up being harder than he thought after the break. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, You don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. So the business Ben Moyer runs today is Wigs by Vanity. And Wigs by Vanity isn't just any wig company. As it happens, the drag queens Ben knew had a problem, a problem that really only Ben could solve. Wigs are an essential part of a drag ensemble. I think it's one of the most important things. A, it's around your face. Like your makeup and your hair, it's your focal point. Like your head is the focal point. You can get away with, you've got your shoes are a bit shitty. You can get away with that because, you know, not everyone's going to look down. But everyone's going to look at your head. But the wigs drag queens wanted were really expensive lace front wigs. Explain what a lace front wig is because I actually don't know what that means. Yeah, it's like a, just a wig that has a section of the front that's made of a very fine mesh or lace. And every hair is knotted in by hand individually to create a sort of an effect where the the hair looks like it's growing from your scalp because the lace blends into your skin, well, it should. Traditionally, the lace front wig was only done by a a professional wig maker. Like bespoke, custom for you? Yep, like going to a tradesperson and having like, you know, someone who's been trained in wig making and they make it for your head, for your hairline, and they do all the work themselves. That would back then, and I'm talking about in the 90s, you're probably looking at over $1,000. For one of these wigs. And, you know, and as a young drag queen, you're not earning a lot of money or, you know, even like it was before Drag Race. It's before RuPaul's Drag Race where drag queens were earning, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for a gig. This is like just drag queens earning a performer's wage, like, you know, just getting by and, you know, being creative and trying to make fabulous things with what they had. So Ben comes up with a sort of workaround to the bespoke custom wig. He figured out how to make the lace front by hand and attach it to a cheaper wig. But when he did it, it was crude. It wasn't quite right. At the time, it was like, that was great. 
it was like, you know, like good on me for, for giving it a red hot go. But now I look back and go, oh God, <laughs> so dodgy. But yeah, I'd sort of would sew the lace on. I found out where to buy the lace and then I'd do it and just do a very crude version for them. And that must take a long time to... Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> it's ages. Yeah. But people were so desperate for that, that they didn't care. They were happy just for anything, like a touch of it. So Ben and his friend Shane Jenick, another Sydney drag queen whose stage name is Courtney Act, they realized this is not going to work. Ben can't make all these wigs by hand. His workaround was actually pretty good, having a machine-made wig with a handmade lace front sewn on, but Ben was not very good at it, and it took him way too long. But if Ben could get a wig made in China... If his old boss could get a bunch of Agent Smith Matrix wigs made in China, why couldn't he and Courtney get wigs made in China? So that's what they did. Enter Wigs by Vanity. Lace front wigs for drag queens designed by drag queens. Gotcha. That's, and, that's and that, basic. We do sell them to, you know, we're not... <laughs> um, right, we, we don't, don't discriminate. discriminate. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, you know, we are, that's our fundamental, you know, thing. Yeah. And how were you different from what existed then? Like, you, why were nothing, you... Di- yeah. Nothing existed then. That was a thing. Like, no, this, what we were doing didn't exist. Apart from those very few things that I've already spoken about of, like, you know, having wig made. But like, There was but no, like, retail, no way... There was no retail for our... Well, basically, what we realized that, that nothing existed for drag queens, specifically, and synthetic lace front wigs just didn't exist and produced to a point where they were affordable. And explain to me what do you mean by what didn't exist for drag queens? Like, how is a wig different for a drag queen as opposed to... Drag queens didn't really want hair that just looked as real as possible. And wigs then, they were, they just, they were designed to look as, try to look as real as possible, which means they were flat and they were thin and like, they didn't look like, you know, hats. Like it wasn't the 60s, like it wasn't the 80s, it was the 90s. Everyone had really boring hair in the 90s. Like if you look back, <laughs> it's just terribly boring. It's flat, it's straight, it's like the Rachel cut. It's like, it's just, there's not really a lot happening there style-wise. And so the wigs reflected that of what was available. So, you know, you had to buy multiple wigs and stack them together and to try and create these big things. And like, so what we wanted to do was create a wig that just would be perfect for a drag queen. It's <laughs> <laughs> so big and fabulous and Big and fabulous. And, and it was funny, like when we first started <laughs> developing our product with our samples, like, and we're working with China and our factory, which we still work with now, by the way, like we've still got the same original supplier after like, it's like over, well over a decade. And they were like, we're saying, oh, we want more hair. We want it thicker. She's like, oh, like, oh no, 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 no. It's like, it's unnatural. Like it's that we want it to look, but we still want it to look natural. You know what I mean? Like, cause we wanted the, the lace front. So they couldn't understand this, this sort of weird sort of, you know, juxtaposition of wanting it to be really big and fabulous and look fake, but also look natural. <laughs> and so that is, we, we confused them completely. They were saying, they're like, oh no, 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 yucky, too thick, too heavy. Like, look, you know, it doesn't look real. And they were just talking about the actual sheer volume of hair that we wanted in it and the size we wanted it and the way we wanted it constructed because they knew that they had been trained and everything they knew about wigs was to make it look as realistic as possible for a woman who didn't want people to know they're wearing a wig. Right. You said synthetic. So is that is it that the lace is synthetic or the hair is synthetic? The hair is synthetic, so it's made of plastic, yeah. Gotcha. So it's a notch down in luxury from... The human hair, hair. The, from yeah. human hair or the wig you got that yeah, you totally. loved so much. But it's totally. above what was available. 
And that's the thing. It's like, this is why it's specifically for drag queens because we didn't want human hair because human hair just isn't like it's too natural. <laughs> like we wanted the plastic's great because like we can, you know, can tease up, it gets sprayed. It's like it holds its shape. It's like, and this is why we would say it was wigs made for drag queens by drag queens. So how do you, like, what are the steps of designing a wig and then getting it made in China? Originally? Yeah. Like a prototype? Yeah. Oh, in, in the very beginning. So hard. So hard. It took a long time because they just didn't understand it. And it was also just very new. And we were also very inexperienced as well. We didn't know how to communicate with them properly. And after a, quite a while of back and forwards and like, you know, emails and, and talking on the phone and stuff like that, trying to make them understand what we wanted, we had just a series of sort of samples, which were almost right, like almost good, but they weren't. And we eventually went over there to explain it to them. It was a huge success. We had three perfect samples produced. They were all, in, they were just, I'm like, oh my God, that's it. This is it. Like, we've done it. Wow. We've cracked the code. We've made it. This will set us up for life, basically. Like, we're going to be able to be a part of something really fabulous. And then we get our first order. We put probably about 100 wigs, maybe. And they were all wrong. <laughs> it was like, I'm like, oh my God, no, what if what's happened? And so what was wrong with them? They just weren't right. <laughs> the lace fronts weren't right. They used like the, the wrong lace. Wa- the wrong lace. They were lace. They knotted the hair differently to the samples. And it, that kind of made me realize that this is not going to be easy. Like it's going to be worth, it's going to be worthwhile, but it's going to be hard work. And it has never stopped being hard work. Like it's just still, like it's still hard to maintain quality and to maintain consistency. It's, it's a lot of work. After the break, what we can learn from all that hard work Ben did. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. There are so many important takeaways from Ben's story. The first one for me is this idea of intimacy at scale. Ben and his partner Courtney knew this very specific problem that really only people in this community, this drag community, could even be aware of. They knew that this community desperately wanted something that was really hard for them to get, and many of them couldn't afford it, even if they could access it. But Ben had the perfect combination of skills and connections to solve this problem. I like to say that the best of the 21st century happens when you combine the best of the 19th century and the best of the 20th. And Ben is a perfect example of that, although I don't think there were many uh, drag queen wig businesses in the 19th century. But in the 19th century, really most of human history before the 19th century as well, most products were local. That's that kind of intimacy. But that was 
such local intimacy that if there happened to be spread around the world a bunch of people who really wanted to be drag queens or wanted some specific thing, but they weren't all in the same village or even all in the same city, there was never going to be a market for those people. Nobody could find them. Then came the 20th century, mass production. And the front edge of what we call the second industrial revolution, the mass production industrial revolution, was always textiles. First in England, then New England, then the American South, and all over Asia and Latin America. Companies learned how to make the same kind of clothing more and more, faster and faster, and spread it everywhere. Only in the 20th century did everyone wear the same kind of t-shirts, the same kind of jeans, the same kind of fashion. That scale without intimacy, without each person finding their authentic selves in the clothing that they wear. But when you combine the two, when you're able to use modern technology, global trade, to find that community of people spread all over the world, too small to have a market in any one city, but big enough worldwide to serve a business, that's when you get something like Wigs by Vanity where a drag queen in Sydney, Australia, is able to solve a problem that drag queens have in New York and Atlanta and London and Paris and Tokyo and Shanghai. That's the best of the 21st century. Was your market from the beginning Sydney or was it? Yep, just local. Local. Yep, just local. And we actually had our first, it was actually quite amazing. Like we've never had to invest our own money into it. Our first order, we just said to our friends, all our drag queen friends, like, look, we're making these wigs. Do you want one? And they all went, yes, absolutely. And we're all right, give us your money. We hadn't even made the wigs. We hadn't developed them. <laughs> we took their money and they were happy to pay for it when we charged because no one else was doing it. So we, we charged, you know, good money. And they were the first ones to have them. So they were like, you know, they were happy to pay. And then we developed the product and we eventually got it all based on people's faith in us, but also developed trust within those people as well. They knew us. They knew I was really good with hair. They'd followed my journey. We all sort of came from the same place. And they knew that I knew what I was talking about when it came to hair. They had faith in me. And so they had faith so much that they sort of, you know, invested their own little bit of money into developing our business. Wow. And then all the city drag queens had a wig, a fabulous wig. And then suddenly the other cities in Australia saw those photos online. And it was when social media was first, like MySpace and stuff like that was happening. So it was like, it was just when we were all starting to communicate and we we're all starting to become part of the same community, even though we weren't in the actual same community. So for the first time, we had instant sort of access to what was happening around, you know, surrounding us. And at that stage, it was still localized in the fact that it was still within Australia. And so then what happened? Then other queens in other cities in Australia sort of wanted one and then their communities saw it and then they wanted one and then it just built from there and then suddenly Courtney moved to America and was in America a lot. Just want to jump in here really quick to explain a little piece of the story we haven't touched on yet. Courtney ended up becoming quite a famous drag queen. She came to the United States and competed in RuPaul's Drag Race. She's done reality shows in the UK, so that obviously did not hurt wigs by vanity. 
and it sort of just built from there. It just was like each order got bigger and, it you know, the more people had one, they wanted another one in a different colour and then they sort of, it just grew from there. It was like, it's quite amazing. But it was also before anyone else was doing it. I don't want to take credit for like, you know, we didn't, you know, invent the wheel, but we certainly pioneered what now is a massive industry and now a lot of, everyone's a bloody wig maker. Everyone's a drag wig maker. <laughs> My Instagram's full of them. Every week there's another one popping up and they're, but they're all just, you know, just getting stuff from China and stuff like that, which is, you know, what we do essentially, but I design all my stuff. But like, you know, Chinese companies take what's out there and copy it and then they mass produce it. And it's never as good, but, you know, it's available. So there's heaps of stuff out there now. And I, you know, I, I you know, take a lot of pride in the fact that we were, you know, really the first to do that. Yeah. Little old us in Australia. So how does Ben ensure that he's adding value? How does he set himself apart from those other people making wigs for drag queens now? How does he make sure he's not making just another commodity product? Because when Ben first started Wigs by Vanity, he had the whole market to himself. He was the guy who came up with it, and drag was still a sort of underground thing. But drag is a big part of popular culture now. It's on TV shows. People feel much more comfortable with it. It's become less niche, which is good for the world, but bad for Ben's business. Now, his answer is a little counterintuitive, but it's smart. It is exactly the right passion economy answer, which is exactly why we're talking to Ben. I'm looking on your website. You have so many... Wigs, they're awesome. Yeah, a lot yeah. of them are sold out. Like, a <laughs> yeah, I'm saying the Raja is sold out. The Raja in Autumn Flame, although I could get it in Burnt Toffee or Gothic Barbie. <laughs> yeah, um, but not Miss Australia or Miss Sweden. <laughs> no, like this is the thing. Like we, I think I thought we could have a big range of wigs, and I wanted to have a big range of wigs. Basically, I wanted a wig that. Anyone that came to my website that was, you know, that was still within our niche would find something they like. So I sort of, you know, wanted this variety of a lot of colors, different styles that people could go, oh, yeah, yeah, I like that one. I want that one. That's, that's who I want to be. That, that works for that. But then I kind of realized that, A, there's a lot, there's a lot of money invested in stock. And these wigs, like they're technically machine-made wigs only because they're made on machines. But all the fronts, all the lace fronts, everything, that's all done by hand. And so you need to have, if I'm getting a, an order with like, you know, with a thousand wigs, like there's a lot of hands that go into making those wigs. So it means that every single worker that is making those wigs has to be trained in exactly how I want them for the nuances, for like all the, and it's really hard to do that. And, um, and I found that over the last few years, the, the more involved, the more delicate, the more nuanced my wigs are the fewer people are able to make them, which is why like, there's so many wigs sold out because I've just realized I have to actually pull back and eventually I'm going to cut those wigs out and they're not going to be available at all. And I'm going to have a small selection of beautiful wigs that will be available. So I'm in the sort of the process at the moment of changing over my entire kind of way I do, I present my stock and how I, you know, what I have available. Even more bespoke, even more niche. I know I've said this before on the podcast, but this is, I think, one of the most counterintuitive things about the passion economy, that 
to be a true passion business, sometimes you have to offer less. You have to make clear that you are going to so thoroughly serve your target audience that you're not going to be distracted by things that your target audience doesn't want. So he is going to focus on high-quality wigs with unique designs, and he's not going to worry about the products that others can make for cheaper. So Ben is just seeding the ground for the low-cost, cheap, mass-produced wigs. His wigs are not the thousands of dollars that it used to cost to get a really nice lace front wig for a drag queen, but they're not cheap either. They're 250 bucks. No, not cheap. Not for considering that this is the one thing about like China is that we're all our own worst enemy. We all are. But China's its own worst enemy as well because like you can go onto eBay and you can buy what looks like the same thing for $40. Like I don't even know how that's even possible. But it's not the same thing at all. When you get it, you realize it's not the same thing at all. But people will see that for $40 and go, oh, well, that looks kind of the same thing. That's still a synthetic lace front wig. Why is yours $250? And they don't know the amount of work that goes into developing that product and building that and designing that. There's a lot of different factors that, that make up the cost or the value of a wig. But unfortunately, the consumer who has no education in the products, they don't understand the difference. So it's hard sometimes for, for people to understand why wigs cost what they do. Which is why you want a clientele that does understand. That, does understand. And that yeah. you've trained, you're not trained, but you develop a relationship with and that they believe they trust you. Like if I say to my customers, this is great. I've made this. This is beautiful. You should buy it. They buy it because they believe me because I've earned their trust. Right. But also that's really hard as well when it comes to developing products or a lot of products that require a lot of hands to make them to keep them consistent because I don't want to lose my customer's trust. Obviously, I want to, you know, always produce a beautiful product. But I've realized that it's better for me to focus on fewer products than a lot more products. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. To- Although the the other way to expand a niche target business is you know, related products. So are there other, are there dresses or makeup or other things yeah, that... Yeah, absolutely. You know. Absolutely. And that's where I want to sort of, you know, I'm opening my mind to. I'm now at a point where I actually could expand and I am expanding and I am, you know, developing stuff to expand. But once again, I think to myself, should I just be focusing on what I know and what, like, will expanding and, and increasing my range and my customer base will that dilute what I'm doing or will I have the attention and the focus to continue doing fabulous things for my niche? But I think as a business, I think it's important to grow and to evolve. And that's how we got to this point in the first place, because we evolved when internet shopping was just first starting. We kind of, we were the first to do what we were doing. And that was through being, you know, open to modern and new ideas. This is this is something that I've heard debated quite a bit. But I think the general, I mean, I think you've identified both the opportunity and the challenge mm. that if you, if expanding means you lose sight of what makes you special, that probably is a bad idea. If you just suddenly become, we're the cheapest wigs in town or, or we're just wigs for everybody. Oh, yeah. We'll never do yeah. that. <laughs> but if you f- sort of have this strong base and then realize, oh, there's other people who also want. Who the- also want it. Yeah. Exactly. And that's where yeah. I find myself now. Like, Instagram's a great platform for us. Like, I just love, you know, how wonderful 
Instagram is for businesses like mine. And I have, I mean, I don't have a huge following. It's like my, like my business partner, Courtney, she's got a million followers or over a million wow. followers. And I've, I've got a hundred thousand. But for me, that's like little old me in Sydney. Like, <laughs> I think that's really wow, cool. That's but like my audience or my followers, they're really attentive. And we, you know, for our size, that's kind of like, you know, for what we can manage stock-wise, produce, you know, we're at a level where I'm really happy with. But 60% of my followers are female. They're not even drag queens. They're not even gay. Like, they're females. And they're really attentive. They want to be a part of it. They love the world and they think it's fabulous and glamorous. And so they should. Like, it is. It's fabulous and everyone's involved and everyone's welcome. And I think to myself, okay, well, like, I've been doing drag queens. I do that. We've done that. Like, we do that now. Like, it's like we're never going to lose focus of that. But what can I do to offer them something? Like as a business person, how can I bring them in? And to be sound a bit greedy, a bit Scrooge McDuck, how can I make money from them? Well, no, that, that's exactly. This is <laughs> a business them. show. We are not. Yeah. Uh, this is not the nonprofit. Yeah. You know how to give exactly. wigs away for free show. Exactly. And and I think to me, you've nailed the issue. Like if there are people who want what you want and value it, like the reason to focus is not just because it's good to focus in and of itself. It's that when you focus, you're able to find an audience who highly values what you do. And what you're doing, you're not opening some giant global wig <laughs> conglomerate that's going to make a lot of volume and mm. and sell wigs where each one is cheap, but you're going to sell so many millions of them. Yeah, it sounds no, like you need, <laughs> you need people who really value this product at a high level. And so obviously, you know one group that does very well. But I, in my mind, if, if there are other people who value it like on the same terms without needing to make major compromises, you know, that makes total sense. Yeah. You know, something I, I strongly believe in informs this show is that for people in passion-based businesses, it's... The goal is not just how can you maximize your income. Like you could maybe, I don't know, learn how to be an investment banker or something or, yeah. you know, but it doesn't seem like that would be a very good life for you. And, no, no. And the goal is not to, it sounds to me like this is, you have created a job for yourself that is deeply satisfying in a whole range of ways, not just financially. Exactly. Which is exactly. not to say every minute is satisfying. It sounds like. No, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. I went through a, a moment a while ago, actually, about a year ago. And I was like getting really depressed because, you know, society puts a lot of pressure on us to be better, you know, to just to succeed. And success obviously is completely relative to what you want in life. But I always had this weird notion like, oh, success is like being a, a mogul, like earning millions of dollars, like, you know, like just being rich. I had this really weird perception of what I thought a business person should eventually become. And I was getting depressed about it. I'm like, oh, I just don't know. I don't know if I actually know how to get to that point. And like, I'm sort of getting you know, a bit upset. And and my flatmate goes to me, because why do you have to be at that point? Like, why can't you just continue as you are now? And I was like, oh, well, because I'm, you know, that sounds perfect because I love where I'm at now. I'm my own boss. I have a, a nice income. You know, I enjoy the situation that I'm in now and the level that my business is at. And so I thought to myself, oh, I'm actually really happy with where we're at now. If I never progress beyond where I'm at now, financially or, you know, or size or growth, then that's fine. When I think of your whole life experience, it's, you, you've just created like... <laughs> 
it's like almost no one else on earth could have the job you have, and there's almost no other job that would be as perfect for you as the oh, job you totally. have. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it also, it's also scary as well because, like, you know, I'm spending all my life developing this business, which fundamentally without me is kind of worthless. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Right. Because it's wings by vanity. It's me. It's like the vanity is me. But in saying that, that's also beautiful because it means that, like, you know, that I am unique and my business is unique and what I provide is unique. And, and that way, you know, as long as I do right by customers and don't cheat people or rip people off, then people always want to work with me because it's what I offer and no one else can do it. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 